Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthy Delights podcast. Thank you for even having the courage to press play on this episode. I know this topic is seldom talked or thought about because as a society we find it so disgusting. That's precisely why we need to shine a light on it and bring it out of the shadows because ignoring this problem isn't working. In this podcast we talk to Dr James Cantor who is a Canadian clinical psychologist and sexologist specialising in hypersexuality and atypical sexual interests such as paedophilia. He is a former editor of the journal Sexual Abuse and an expert on paraphilia. We try to understand what makes a paedophile tick and what can be done to help those looking for help. I know this is a controversial topic guys but it really takes us to try to understand and have some level of compassion and empathy towards these afflicted people for us to be able to better deal with it as a society because quite simply how we're dealing with it now really isn't working as uh, my own personal example would show. So I really urge you guys to listen to this. Dr. James Cantor is an amazing guest. He actually laces this podcast with comedy of all things, when it's right, obviously. But his expertise and his knowledge is refreshing because normally this topic is filled with so much hatred and to get a more objective viewpoint is really helpful. I really actually enjoyed this podcast, I must say, and I came off with a quite a high after we had this uh, conversation with Dr. James. And uh, I hope, if nothing else, this maybe allows you to see this whole um, subject from a different perspective and understand that what we're doing today isn't working and that we need a shift in mentality for us to begin to solve this problem. Without further ado, here is Dr. James Cantor. Professor James Cantor, welcome to the Earthy Delights. Really delighted to have you on. Uh, what's the crack? How are you? Oh, uh, pleased to be here. Uh, well, uh, I live in uh, in Canada. I'm in Toronto right now, and of course, you know they're having a big election downstairs. Mm. So, uh, uh, as, uh, as I've often said, uh, there was a Broadway song for uh, for everything. This one is by Mel Brooks, which uh, is uh, uh, "Hope for the best, expect the worst." <laughs> I think that could just um, caption 2020, couldn't it? In general, <laughs> I hate to say it, but yeah, it's uh, oh, what a crazy year we've lived. Um, before before we get into into the belly of the beast here, I really want to just, like you said, it's really important for people to know that you're a professor, that you have studied um, and spent a lot of time working in this field. So could you, but you're doing better than I will. Could you please just give me a bit of a background about yourself and how you kind of got into this line of work? Uh, sure. Oh, uh, that was an easy question, then a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm uh, primarily a, a sex researcher, although I'm doing much more uh, uh, private practice now. Uh, and by just, you know, dint of, I grew up a nerdy math oriented kind of kid, and I actually was uh, planning on going into uh, computer science to, uh, to begin with. And so, you know, I just ended, had this technical background. And then Essentially, the thing that changed my life was just coming out as gay. You know, that, that was, you know, I was a bit of a laboratory nerd naturally. Mm-hmm. And just coming out, you know, just, again, changed the orientation of my life, no pun in, uh, intended. I should say the trajectory <laughs> of my life. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, this was now the late 80s, early ni- uh, early 90s, a very, very different world. You know, sexual orientation issues, you know, were really only just starting to get discussed in a, uh, in a productive uh, way. And then the AIDS era took over, you know, uh, uh, the entire field and our entire mindset. Uh, and that's when I decided to become a psychologist. You know, I wanted to be able to help, you know, other people, young people, you know, trouble coming out and so on, exactly like I did. 
I started training in gen, uh, gender identity clinic, but you know the rules were you needed another half to your uh, uh, to one's uh, 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 internship year, and that other half was in a sexual behaviors clinic where they saw a lot of sex offenders. I was never planning on doing that. All of that really kind of seemed very bizarre to me, but you know I needed another half. Yeah, I needed another rotation. But once I got there. By sheer coincidence, they were planning on doing some brain-based studies on pedophiles and people with other uh, uh, other atypical sexualities. Well, I was interested in what made anybody interested in whatever they're interested in, and I had a technical background, you know, doing neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Twenty-five years goes by. You know, I'm now head of that, that uh, senior scientist, head of that research lab, and you know, we'd spent a generation. You know, from brain scans and looking for other clues, make you know, in their case, it was largely about what made uh, a pedophile a pedophile. But of course, really, to a scientist, I was interested in the big question what makes anybody interested in whatever they're interested in? There already were labs looking at that uh, 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 heterosexuality versus homosexuality. So I became known for, you know, the brain based studies and the biological based studies on the rest of it, you know, uh, pedophilia and, you know, now starting to look at the other uh, the other type uh, atypicalities. Uh, so really, it's been, as I say, a stack of studies. And I got to work with some really, really t- uh, talented people throughout the world. And, you know, now versus 20 years ago, where we used to think that, you know, people just kind of picked or learned or were trained in whatever their sexual interest patterns are. We've now come the full circle. Now it seems like all of these, especially the highly atypical uh, patterns, are really all brain phenomena. So uh, uh, so as I say, so my trip has been fascinating and I've gotten, you know, some, so, uh, uh, to participate in some uh, I will say fascinating, but also, you know, a lot of controversial questions that, yeah. you know, evoke a lot of emotions in a, uh, in a lot of people. So being able to get this information out and into society where it can be used, for example, to prevent cases of sexual abuse. You know, now, again, I get to do uh, contribute what feels like a social good on top of, you know, asking some fascinating, fascinating questions. Yeah, I- I'm really glad you meant there's a word that controversial. And I think more and more so anything around sexuality, sexual orientation, whatever it may be, is becoming controversial. And if you even just touch it, it will scorn you. Um, And I just feel, you know, it's funny. I was saying to you just before the podcast, people now know, but I've had dealings with a paedophile in my own family. um, And yet, even when I bring it up to my friends, a lot of them say, oh, please, I really can't talk about that. It's just too much. I don't know how you can bear it, blah, blah, blah. And I always feel like it's the other way around. Surely, if I'm the one who's kind of had to deal with it, I should be the touchy one and you should be the more calm and be able to have the conversation. But I think especially sexual abuse and paedophilia specifically, it's such like um, this topic where we've almost given it this monstrous kind of uh, shadow and we can't bear to even like talk about it, look at it, think about it. And ultimately it's not working because if it was working, if it were working, I wouldn't be talking to you as lovely as you are. And uh, I wouldn't have had the problem that I've, I, we've had in our family. So I wanted to have this conversation because I think it's needed. I think people need to understand and maybe through that understanding, that scientific understanding you can give us that could maybe offer, and this is going to sound really weird, but a level of compassion or better yet empathy that could help us try to deal with this situation better than we already are because clearly what we're doing is not working with that in mind jim actually said before we got on with the podcast to kind of talk about 
could you differentiate uh, the orientation and all of that those words that now we find really kind of touchy kind of what they mean scientifically speaking before we get going on anything controversial uh i guess uh, all of that's true and uh, uh there's also a lot to unpack in there forgive my yeah. kind of aging no, brain no, no. if i don't get to each point I, I, the first one is i really have to tip my hat to you uh to anybody who has been you know uh, uh affected by uh, child molestation sexual abuse you know it's really I'm a scientist, you know, and as I've told a lot of uh, audiences, you know, thinking about topics like this, controversial and emotionally laden topics in general, you know, require us to tap our inner Vulcan. You know, the emotionality is, of course, you know, we're human. All of that is perfectly understandable. But the anger and the depression, you know, a, a lot of that uh, uh, emotion just makes it harder to talk about the topic in a reasoned, you know, effective policy oriented uh, way. Now, again, because I have not been affected, you know, directly by these kinds of issues, you know, I have a chance to do that. But for somebody who has really, you know, suffered at the hands of, the, uh, uh, of these issues and still able to keep their emotions, you know, in check in order to take a rational, all right, let's ha how do we fix this problem so it doesn't get passed forward? That takes an, a, a level of self-discipline and mindfulness and mental health that is really is quite, quite rare. Uh, and frankly, countercultural. Mm. Most of society, especially on so, uh, social media, is, uh, if nothing else, indulgent in whatever their emotions are, however understandable uh, those emotions are. But as I say, people are letting that get in the way of their thinking in a way in a way that hasn't happened before. So I really, uh, you have conquered a beast that few people are able to. And I, I really, really have to tip my hat to you. Thank you for that. It, uh, it's well-deserved. The, um, the uh, idea of this being uh, controversial and uh, that people don't want to talk about it again, is a side effect of that emotionality. And, you know, I have a certain, I understand where people are coming from. People these days especially have no role models for how to have a difficult conversation. Everything is my side yelling at your side, everybody, you know, painting each other as the more extreme and saying whatever, you know, most extreme things they can think of because it gets them the most retweets. You know, actually finding the areas on which we agree, disagree, you know, look up the facts where we disagree, having an actual, you know, targeted, you know, aimed conversation at solving this problem long term. People are not interested in solving the problem. People are interested in demonstrating how good, how virtuous, you know, their particular side is and just, you know, getting rid of anybody who, uh, uh, who disagrees. Uh, now, when somebody is confronted with, uh, you know, a genuine conversation, somebody like you describe where you want to talk about it with the uh, people around you and people just, again, I understand where they're coming from. They have no role models for how to have a difficult conversation. So people are just kind of backing out of it rather than genuinely educate me, tell me, you know, what is your point of view? They, you know, feel like, oh, this is so radioactive. I'm worried about how I'm going to look if I do not demonstrate, you know, just how, uh, you know, affected I, I am by it by, oh my goodness, I got the vapors. This is such a tough, that's not how to deal with the topic and that's not how to prevent mm. abuse. Yeah. Uh, so again, you're serving as that role model in a way that uh, I think would uh, uh, will and can do society an enormous amount of, uh, of good. What I 
discover myself in that conversation, again, is to acknowledge where people's are, uh, people's emotions are. I get where they're coming from. But if we instead, you know, give them what's essentially permission to talk about the topic, now all of, uh, all of a sudden people really do want to know. They really do want to help. They just, as I say, they need what has disappeared in society, which is role models for how to have a rational conversation rather than an emotionally uh, uh, laden one. Uh, so again, that, that's where I keep using my phrase, tap your inner Vulcan, you know, take, yeah. take, take a deep breath. And what I find yeah, over and over and over again with, uh, with audiences is it really just takes two basic facts about how to think about the entire situation. And then all of a sudden I get, Oh, and the it starts making sense. People can actually start having a rational conversation about it just by giving the, oh, I get it now. Mm. Those two factoids are, uh, one, pedophilia is not a synonym for, uh, for child molestation. Now, of course, I understand where people get that misinformation. The only time we ever hear about pedophilia is in when there is a case of child molestation that's in the news. So, you know, naturally, these have become uh, uh, synonyms in, uh, in the public mind. They're not. Pedophilia is a sexual orientation pattern. These people are genuinely sexually attracted to children the way the rest of us are sexually attracted to adult women, adult men. They didn't ask for it. It's, an, uh, uh, it's the result of brain structure, and they cannot change it. That's different from child molestation. Child molestation is the behavior. This is what harms a kid. This is the crime. That's what must be prosecuted. Not all pedophiles are child molesters. There's no way we can get a survey. So, you know, it's not like we can, you know, figure it out. But we have every reason to believe that only a child, uh, only a uh, minority of people genuinely attracted to children ever actually act on it. Just because they're a pedophile does not mean that they're a child molester. And vice versa. And this we do know. Uh, the great majority, you know, uh, the majority, two thirds ish of child molesters are not actually pedophiles. They actually are more attracted to adults than they are to children, but they use a child as a surrogate, you know, as a, 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 as a uh, because the child was in the environment and manipulable and they didn't have contact with an adult. Uh, that's the most common, for example, within incest patterns, which again happens much more commonly than, than the pedophiles who, you know, the ones who do offend do it outside of the family. It's not it, it, the the cluster of variables are unlike the incest situation. The bottom line is not all pedophiles are child molesters. Not all child molesters are pedophiles. And people are you know aiming at the you know the criminals, the ones who have committed crimes, as if they were the people who. No, a lot of these people are just born. Come to figure it out, you know, when they're 12, 13, 14, getting crushes on 12, 13, 14 year olds, just like everybody else, nobody notices. But by the time they start hitting, you know, 18, 19, 20, and they're still getting crushes on 13, 14, it's only then in adulthood that they're realizing that, oh, something's up. That's now different from a gay person growing up who realizes that they were different, you know, pretty much from, uh, from the get go. So really what we want to do in order to prevent pedophiles becoming 
child molesters is to make it as easy as possible for these people to come in to therapists, get therapy, sex drive reducing medications. Have you know they're not going to be able to join a you know coming out group you know for gays and lesbians the way that you know I and my people could. Right. Yeah. They need a professional, you know, with real, real, real confidentiality. If we want to actually help, we need to make it easier for these people to get help. But all we're actually doing with with the overreactive policies is making it practically impossible. We're putting up, you know, mandatory reporting legislation, you know, which yeah. to an expert, I know this pedophile, you know, and I am qualified to say that this pile, yeah, pedophile is not putting anybody at risk. The average mental health person, the average psychologist, the average social worker does not have that background. Now, of course, they're in legal danger if they don't report when they should, but nothing happens if you report when you don't have to. So, of course, you know, people respond to the pressure, default to reporting. The people who want to come in and get therapy know that. So what happens? They don't come into therapy. So instead of having a pedophile, you know, getting support, sex drive, reducing medications, whatever it is that's appropriate to their case, instead we have pedophiles out circulating in society with absolutely no supervision to anybody. There, feel better? Yeah. We're making the situation worse at the same time as congratulating ourselves at how bad we're being to those potential bad guys, again, who haven't actually done anything and are working hard to stay that way. Twitter is banning, you know, conversations that, you know, would help these people get to support groups where, again, the number one thing we know about, you know, how do we uh, uh, how to help a person not uh, commit any kind of crime, child molestation or otherwise, is having, you know, pro-social contacts. Mm. But we're cutting off all of their opportunities to have exactly those contacts. We're making the problem worse in our uh, uh, in our hysteria, uh, so as I say, so so the the the, the number one big rule that uh, people get wrong, but once they understand, all of a sudden things start to fall in place, is that pedophilia is not a synonym for child molestation. And, and although you know it's like this, you know, classic yeah. guy, there's overlap, but these are distinct and minority minority uh, overlap. Uh, the other one is that pedophilia is not a choice. All the evidence indicates over and over and over, study after study after study, this is a brain thing. They are born with it the way the rest of us are born with, you know, attraction to adults, men or women, or whatever it is that uh, they're attracted uh, to. They cannot, ch- they cannot change it. No amount of therapy is going to turn somebody, you know, into a, from a pedophile into a non-pedophile. All we can do is help give these people the tools to deal with this sexual interest pattern that they did not ask for and cannot change. Now, what's amazing is that as that evidence was emerging, the pedophiles themselves says, we knew it, we knew it, we knew it, we knew it, we knew it. Nobody was listening to them. You know, and in, you know, classic days of uh, uh, both psychoanalysis, where everything was about relationship with mother or in the heavy uh, uh, behaviorism days, everything was, you know, whatever you were learned and was reinforced when you were a kid. No evidence for it. Never was. It was just the going psychological theory at the time. But now that the evidence is rolling in, they're born with it. This is a brain thing. If there's going to be a method of prevention, it's finding out whatever, how that chain of events starts and preventing it back then. 
So if we actually want to do prevention, again, it's going to be science. But people don't want to put money and resources into this kind of science exactly because of the, the controversy surrounding it. And people are afraid of accidentally looking like, not really looking like that they're supporting pedophiles, but if that they don't, uh, with the correct amount of weight, condemn everything attached to it, that they will be mistaken for somehow supporting child molestation. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that myth is actually preventing us from doing meaningful research on it. Yeah. So, it's funny you say that because I was actually talking to Jim just before this podcast and we were saying, how do we kind of get into this topic and blah, blah. blah. And I said, look, Jim, I actually have the only reason I had the confidence to have this conversation with you and is because of my previous personal experience, because otherwise I would fear being called a pedophile sympathizer or something along those lines and it's just such a hot i mean you, you talked about twitter i followed you on i followed your feed i was scrolling down and almost all of your tweets that were yours that you hadn't retweeted someone else almost all of your tweets twitter said they blocked them and they said um uh sensitive content changing your settings if you want to and this is obviously uh, something that's inbuilt in twitter because i've never touched my settings on twitter ever so it must be a default setting and i thought look this is an expert who whatever you were sharing might be articles or whatever i don't think you were saying like way pro pedophilia yeah woohoo like you were just sharing whatever the science is showing and that was deemed sensitive content that I, even though I'd pressed follow on your account, I wasn't allowed to see unless I went into my own settings. And I think that kind of encapsulates it perfectly how as a society we see this whole situation. It's a rough call. Now, again, it's, it's because I am sitting on top of 25 years of research and that I know exactly what the truth is and what is a myth or at least what the evidence is and what is uh, what is mere rumor. Uh, but society today, more than ever before, just not interested in the right answer. We're interested in our images. Mm. We're interested in how we look to our followers. The right answer, controversial, not controversial. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm a sex researcher. You know, sex research has been controversial since there has been sex research. But uh, and I say this often. So sex research among the sciences uh, is a canary in this coal mine. What does it say about, pick your point of view, where the scientists are the ones that are getting, people are getting cautioned about, but the people who know the least yeah. can say whatever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want. That's exactly how we produce the public mistakes between pedophilia and child molestation, the public misconceptions about how it works, and the passage of all of these overreactive laws, which, you know, as the experts keep saying, are probably making things worse. Mm -hmm. And so, right. Uh, now, I, actually, you're the first person to tell me that the, uh, I was getting labeled with a sensitive uh, content material uh, on that. I don't know if that's a relatively recent change in Twitter. Uh, ironically, Twitter itself has recently come out with a new uh, with a new policy, which fine, 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 fine. But they made the you know big carnal mistake in the last. I don't remember if there were ten of these, but let's say ten commandments, and you know commandment number ten was the mix up. The f 
first set of them were all about, you know, perfectly legitimate stuff. They were talking about, you know, how Twitter cannot be used uh, uh, for essentially uh, 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 the manipulation of children, child, uh, sexualized child images and so on. You know, so it was about, you know, how Twitter can, you know, would not be involved, cannot be involved in actually illegal behavior. That's about child molestation, child born with you. The last line, however, all of a sudden was about pedophilia and the wrong definition. You know, all of a sudden they said people weren't allowed to talk, uh, uh, allowed to discuss pedophilia as a sexual orientation or things that would normalize it. Okay, can somebody give me a definition of normal? Because in science, we we don't get, I, normal? You know, we've been pointing out, especially when it comes to sex, anybody got a workable definition of normal? We're all uh, ears. Now, normalize. What does that mean? We redefine a scientific concept. In, all of science is exactly about removing the judgmentalism that is, and all of this again. And is this actually going to prevent child molestation, the ultimate goal, or actually facilitate it? Again, all that this is well-meant, well-intended, kind of image-oriented rather than fact-oriented towards the end. But again, this is going to make things worse. We want pro-social pedophiles to be able to, how do you deal with it? What doctor do you go to? How do I deal with it? What have you used? Rather than, as I say, everything we know about, you know, how to modify modify human behavior and encourage pro-social behavior is exactly the opposite. So as I say, Twitter uh, 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 has just come out with this new policy a week or two ago. Experts all over the world are now assembling various uh, 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 various letters and petitions to say, nope, you've, you've messed it up at, uh, uh, at the end. So I wouldn't be surprised if now all of a sudden, you know, as part of that, right, it, uh, if, this is, uh, if this is new. Again, it's the American elections. They've made a lot of changes recently for labeling information, misinformation. Right, so it could be part of that. Uh, could be part of that. Uh, so, but as I said, this is a first, yeah, you're the first one to tell me that they've uh, that they've labeled it. But there's hopefully somebody that asked. Uh, Not likely, <laughs> but hopefully. Well, I, I, I want to do what I always want to do. How can yeah. I make this into a joke? You know, it, it, it's uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of my friends. You know, think that you know I, I should walk around with like, a, a sensitive content warning. Uh, or though, you know, what, what, uh, it's, although we passed it, that, that probably would have made a great Halloween costume for me, if, you know, <laughs> just a, a, a T-shirt with, uh, uh, with it. Uh, that said, you know, I am talking about sexual topics and there are people, you know, for whom, you know, many parts of society want, uh, want there to be age controls on that. Again, so th- there is a certain uh, uh, sensitivity that uh, society has that, you know, in order to be a scientist about controversial material, I you know, necessarily have to tune that out. Otherwise, you know, it affects my objectivity or it makes it harder to remain objective about uh, about these kinds of uh, uh, these kinds of topics. I just want to jump in just before Jim gets out. I know Jim has a load of questions. And uh, one thing I just want to clear up, um, you mentioned that that sexual orientation and we you often hear in the discourse that it's lumped in with being gay. And obviously, for very obvious reasons, that is incredibly um uh you know uh, 
upsetting for a gay person to hear that they're kind of being lumped in with paedophilia and so we now in the public discourse we try to differentiate and we don't call um, paedophilia a sexual orientation because we don't want to lump it in with heterosexuality homosexuality and so forth just scientifically speaking could you clear that up for us sure uh this is one of those uh uh, one of those areas where, you know, the public uses the word sexual orientation the way they usually hear the word sexual orientation. And the public only hear it, you know, with regard to, you know, it, with regard to homosexuality, you know, straight gay. Mm-hmm. You know, people have just yeah. been started to use the word sexual orientation because it was you know, fewer syllables than gay, lesbian, bisexual. You know, and, yeah. you know, and then we switch to letters and now we just keep tacking on uh, uh, on more letters. Uh, but to a scientist, you know, the term is uh, uh, is broader than that. You know, in science, sex, uh, calling something a sexual orientation just means that you were born with it. This is in the brain. You didn't pick it. And it's not going to change. You know, it's your this is the kind of sex to which you are oriented. Now, it is unfortunate. And again, I get you know, a little bit of leeway, you know, in talking about mm-hmm. it because I am openly gay, but, you know, it's not, you know, again, because I say it, people to, oh, people will think about it the extra second. Calling pedophilia sexual orientation is not, you know, a, a repetition of, you know, the old stereotype about, you know, gay men being a greater risk to molest children. You know, that's where that, that comes from. Although that doesn't get talked about nearly as much, you know, that, that myth doesn't get spoken today as uh, uh, nearly as mm-hmm. much as it used to. Uh, today is uh, much more about uh, uh, an exaggerated version of, of, of political uh, political correctness. Uh, so again, to a scientist, yeah, pedophilia. And now it looks like most of the atypical sexualities, the profoundly atypical sexualities, all of these things appear to be, you know, an innate, inborn, not going to change with any kind of therapy, you know, and our... Uh, 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 and the only thing that anybody can do with any of these is to learn as healthy a way to possible uh, as possible to you know integrate these into their lives. If we're lucky, our sexual interest pattern is one that can be expressed you know in the real world with a consenting partner. You know, if you're straight, you get you know roughly fifty percent of the world. If you're gay, you get roughly two percent of the world. If you're uh, into amputees, you know, and, and, and there are yeah. some situations where. There isn't anybody like the pedophiles or people who are interested in, you know, again, any of the other many, many atypical, uh, atypical sexualities that are uh, not act outable in the real world. Uh, A lot of people who are into a lot of kinks, you know, getting beaten up, doing the beaten up, you know, they want to do it and do do it in a consenting situation. But again, they're just kind of imitating what it was, uh, what it is they actually want, uh, want to do, uh, want to do. So we approximate same thing. Uh, it's just that the pedophiles are in the situation where there's nobody who can consent in a perfectly yeah. right. Now, again, this is to those of us who were gay and realized, you know, we're different from the rest of society. Oh, this, you know, is going to be tough the way it looked, uh, looks in the beginning. What we had to go through now with was a piece of cake next to what they go through. We are essentially asking these people what choice is there to live their entire lives celibate yeah. without telling a single soul, even a shrink. Mm. Talk about a curse. Yeah. Right. Now, again, it feels weird to be able to say that, to put yourself in a mindset like that and find you're being sympathetic they didn't ask for it. 
They were born like this. They couldn't change it. And the only thing is, all right, not even pornography that they like it, you know, because that then, you know, harms the imagine, but that's what they're being asked to do. And we in society, right. What if we want them to remain celibate, we need to make that as easy as possible. Come into therapy, you know, anonymous situations, anonymous, whatever it takes for sex drive reducing medic. But instead we just put up wall after wall after wall and expect these people, right. And zero, zero tolerance for a single slip. I even feel funny using the word slip. A slip means a kid gets hurt. Yeah. But right. And we are tilting the entire thing against them and whoever turns out to be the victim. Right. It's crazy. But that is exactly what we're doing because in general, it makes, I'm now saying us, the voter, feel better about, you know, I'm giving it, I'm showing, you know, what a tough guy I am to the bad guys. You're making it worse. Dr. Jays, you said you're sitting on 25 years of research. And for people listening who are still a bit skeptical, is there pieces of research that you use to really hit home or like the most profound pieces of research that you say, like, I can't, this has cemented my view on sexuality? Uh, I hesitate to say one. Okay. Uh, because, I mean, the brain is complicated, sex is complicated, behavior is complicated, and it's very rare for one study to ever show. It's not like, you know, we can point to the telescope, oh my God, there's a blip where there shouldn't be one, there's the whatever it is we were trying to observe. Uh, if I had to pick a particular smoking gun, if I can use that expression, it would be the identification of handedness. Okay. That now, when we started doing this, so the research, you know, it was successive approximation, zeroing in, you know, until we got closer and closer and then able to take actual brain scans. The actual brain scans, you know, told us, you know, what parts of the brain or what systems were in the brain uh, of the brain were different in these people. We What we found was a total surprise. In retrospect, we should have predicted it. None of us did. Uh, what looks like is affected is the cabling tissue that wires together the various parts of the brain that as a group form the sex response network. Whatever it is that the brain uses to identify, aha, that's sexy, go reproduce with it and trigger the response. It's the white matter. It's the cabling tissue that, you know, assembles that network into a single cohesive system. It's that connectivity that seems to be uh, off. But of course, when I take the brain scan, I'm taking the brain scan of the person in adulthood. That doesn't tell me when the person's brain became different. The prior studies that showed, you know, again, they're physically shorter. You know, proportions of the body are a little bit different. You know, things that don't change really in adulthood, but handedness. There's one and only one thing that controls human handedness. And that's which hemisphere of the brain is dominant. And it, it's crossed, left-handed people, and I'm one of them. Uh, we have a, a, a right hemisphere dominance, usually, and reverse in everybody else. Right-handed people are left hemisphere dominant, which is usual in people. Uh, if, however, uh, uh, in brain development, once the dominant hemisphere grows, 
faster. It, you know, that's how it becomes dominant. If, however, something goes off during development that interferes, you know, poor nutrition, uh, uh, maternal stress, whatever, that interferes with the growth of, uh, uh, of that, the other hemisphere starts to compensate. It speeds up its growth and starts taking over functions that used to be, would otherwise be taken over by the other hemisphere. Mm-hmm. One of those things happens to be handedness. So in people who are non-right-handed, technically, ambidextrousness and, you know, goes with a, uh, non, uh, uh, goes with left-handedness in this. Uh, so when we find a preponderance, you know, instead of it being the 10% base rate that it is in the population, instead it was over 30% of the pedophiles. The only way we could see a shift like that would be if there was something going on and it was different before birth. Handedness does not change in adulthood. Even in the you know old Catholic school model, they didn't change to left-handed, they changed to right-handed. Right. So again, the only way to explain that uh, this handedness difference existed, uh, 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 to explain this handedness difference is if there were substantial brain differences and if those differences uh, began before birth. And then, so on top of that, when we line up all of the other things that we found different, you know, IQ functioning, memory functioning, you know, uh, 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 clumsiness, head injuries, other things, again, but the, whatever the chain of events is that leads to pedophilia, the first links of that chain have to have been before birth. And so really, even though it's this very modest variable, the implications of, uh, of it, of handedness were, uh, were profound. Uh, that, that I mean, you've emphatically said, it, and I know you've already said it, but just to go over the point, um, it cannot be a learned behavior then, because one of the excuses I gave my uncle, um, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the excuse that I gave and the excuse that you often hear in, in public discourse is they were molested as a child. And so, and I, I, I never knew, I don't know categorically if he was molested as a child, but there was always the family rumor was he and his dad didn't get on very well. So what that means, who knows, but hey, so I deducted from that, well, he was maybe molested as a child and it's a learned behavior. But what you're saying is that may be true for an, uh, a kid molester, child molester, but not for a pedophile. Is that Excellent. the distinction? Yes. The, uh, uh, the pattern that the literature uh, shows is uh, not so much that being a victim of sexual abuse makes one more likely to commit sexual abuse. Uh, the overall pattern is that chaos begets chaos. People who grew up in uh, difficult circumstances, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, are more likely to engage in you know that those kinds of poor parenting behaviors, if I can refer to it that way, with their own mm-hmm. kids. And it could be sexual abuse, it could be physical abuse, it could be neglect. Uh, there is no like makes like association where the sexual abuse is more likely to beget sexual abuse, you know, in a way right. that would suggest a learning process. Uh, really, uh, what we seem to see is uh, that uh, in chaotic childhoods. People don't form, you know, self-restraint skills as much as other people. So when they face the stresses of parenthood in later life, they are more likely to express in, you know, antisocial ways, whatever, you know, emotions it is, uh, whatever, you know, violent or abusive instincts that they themselves are feeling. 
So it's that uh, behavioral dis, uh, uh, disinhibition that appears to go from generation to generation rather than actual pedophilia, the sexual attraction pattern going from uh, generation to generation. Uh, it's just that, you know, if one happens to be pedophilic or have, you know, any other uh, uh, sexual atypicality, uh, atypicality, if one is going to express it inappropriately, then that's going to be the be behavior that they're more likely to express uh, inappropriately. Uh, but there's no good evidence to have suggested uh, the nickname for it is we called it the uh, the abused abuser hypothesis that being the victim of abuse made more uh, uh, one more likely to uh, uh, to commit it. Uh, but in uh, uh, in none of the follow up uh, but that wasn't the pattern really that emerges from follow uh, from follow up studies. It's much more you know chaotic childhoods beget chaotic uh, chaotic adulthoods seems to be the pattern. Dr. James, obviously it wasn't too long ago where homosexuality was considered a sickness uh, and that maybe we need to fix these people or something like this. Uh, and do you think that people who consider pedophiles as these sick people and we need to fix this, it, is, it, is it a similarly fruit, fruitless endeavor to an extent in, in, in the hope that they can fix them in terms of change their orientation rather than fix them as in? Uh, give them tools to deal with what their current situation or their identity. I don't know if I would have used the word homosexuality and fruitless in the same sentence. <laughs> oh, there you go. Now you got the joke. <laughs> uh, it's a tough question and not entirely a scientific question although it's about how and when to apply science. Now, whether uh, the history is, it, the history is complicated and I'm trying not to, you know, jump into a big philosophical, uh, philosophical discussion. Uh, there are certain, you know, undeniable similarities uh, between the idea of trying to, you know, turn a gay man into a straight man and turning a pedophile into a non-pedophile. You know, again, these are in the brain, they're born with it, you know, and it makes, you know, people uncomfortable for uh, different reasons. Uh, again, so a certain parallel to it. Uh, now, of course, that parallel starts to fall about, uh, fall apart when, well, gay men can have sex with other uh, gay men, go have a good time, use a condom, go on prep, you know, and so on and so on. Uh, where with pedophiles, we don't have that option where, you know, just living, you know, gay, openly gay and gay, engaging in gay behavior, you know, perfectly hard, uh, harmless, engage in safe sex, please, you know, and go nuts. That option isn't true for pedophiles. The idea, again, the alternative, you know, the goal, if I can call it that, would be to live a celibate life. So the idea of is this person better off, you know, undergoing, if there were such a thing, a conversion therapy for pedophilia, that now, you know, is in a very, very different political context than in, if I can call it that, plain vanilla homosexuality, where just, you know, have a good time is an option. For pedophiles, that's not there. So the idea of converting them, right, happens in a very different balance of how good is this for the client patient and how good is this for society, where for homosexuality, it's, you know, should be irrelevant to society. So, so the ethical questions are, as I said, are, are different. That the, the pluses and minuses fall in a uh, fall in a different pattern. Uh, 
Now, a lot of gay men, you know, when we were kids, you know, we'll often have described, you know, a desire to have engaged in such a therapy, mainly because we didn't want to be different from the people around us. We want to fit in in the way that kids want to fit in. And then, you know, some of us, as we grow up, actually learn to uh, embrace the way that we're different from the uh, uh, from the rest of the world and to embrace the diversity that it provides any, uh, any group. Uh, now, with pedophiles, if a pedophile comes in and says, Doc, I want to be converted, right, well, if it's a gay person, I have a meaningful option to turn them into a help, turn them into a, you know, well-adjusted, deal with it, go have a good time, gay man. Yeah. I don't really exactly have that option with, uh, you know, with a pedophile. So the pluses and minuses, you know, social and personal professional benefit falls in a different uh uh, falls in a different way. Whether it counts as a disorder, whether anything counts as a disorder is part science and part value judgment. And neither one is ever going to give us a complete answer. Science is never going to be able to say anything more than, you know, we have found, you know, biologically significant, you know, differences, you know, therefore it forms a, a, a taxon or a, a dimension of difference, you know, amongst humans. All right, that's the scientific end. Uh, whether that counts as a disease, well, that's now value judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. The current official, you know, uh, manual, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual from the uh, American Psychiatric Association, and now the World Health, Orga- uh, uh, Health uh, Organization, their equivalent manual is you know, going in the same direction, are dividing atypical sexualities from disorders of atypical sexualities. Just being attracted to children does not qualify you for pedophilic disorder. To qualify officially for the diagnosis of pedophilic disorder, you have to be attracted to children. But it also either has to cause you distress, you know, you have to be upset by it, or you actually engaged in in the behavior. You actually molested a child and it's causing harm in society. So those would be, you have to, now in this new version since 2013, I think it was, uh, you need to you need one of those in order to, to qualify for the diagnosis. So if a person has, you know, adjusted, you know, learned to integrate in a healthy way, you know, that they are interested in children, you know, not hurting anybody, they would be a pedophile, but they would not qualify for the disorder, pedophilic disorder. They would not qualify for an official uh, diagnosis. Uh, it, it, that that distinction actually was a brilliant, brilliant addition to the uh, to the DSM. It was. Uh, 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 suggested uh, by uh, Ray Blanchard, you know, one of the the, the real kings of this uh, of this field. Uh, anyway, so now if the pedophile comes in and wants to change, I have to tell him what the limitations are of the science. But you know, now in a theor- theoretical way, if we developed such a technology that would turn a pedophile into a non-pedophile. Do I treat this like conversion therapy for homosexuality and say, nope, sorry, we leave all of this alone. This is how you were born. Yeah. Do I help them convert? Do I help them integrate it? Those are legitimate and complicated, but now ethical and philosophical rather than scientific questions. Uh, even harder, and I got a, uh, a tweet from somebody uh, uh, anonymously, but acknowledged that they themselves were attracted to, uh, to children. Uh, I often uh, report uh, uh, point out that, you know, it's the brain research is going to be, you know, uh, uh, ultimately, if we ever find a way of preventing the development of pedophilia, it's going to come from, you know, brain research, you know, and then, you know, prenatal testing, if we can now project into the future. All right, now mothers and parents have a question. 
abort the kid? Is there an intervention we could use to make, you know, this condition less likely to develop in the first place? You know, we're now starting to talk about a little bit of, you know, genetic engineering is kind of thing again. And we're here with our moral values. You know, do we do that if the kid is more likely to develop to be uh, gay or, you know, pick your or kinky or pedophilic? I, I, yeah, now we're in a rough situation. So as I say, so uh, for the first time, I got a, got a message from somebody who is a pedophile. Uh, at first, you know, thanking me for this, re uh, for, you know, doing this research, you know, and confirming, as I say, so many pedophiles say it, we knew it, we knew it, we knew it, we knew it. You know, they, they just say, they report that they feel like they were born this way. Uh, but to question, hey, if I were aborted, I wouldn't exist. Is that really, you know, mm. is that fair? Yeah. yeah legitimate question mm, very very dr james I, I, you spoke you've spoken about celibacy and it's such a how can i put this i look i when i was doing some research when i found out that anger wasn't the way to deal with the situation i tried to um, try to be more understanding which led me to a few google searches and before i knew it i was down this rabbit hole um one of those google searches where i found you but another one was where i found this um online community of pedophiles who i don't want to put the website out there because i don't want them to get hate but who um, basically they would use it as a forum and they would just express and obviously you know for me it was hard to read but i tried to read as much as i could and you know these are their people saying i'm 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 a i'm attracted to whatever it may have been specifically 12 to 14 year old boys this 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 blah blah i would never dream of it i I would, I've got, I'm a, I'm a nanny, but I would never, I really attracted to the boy, but I'd never touched them, this, that, and the other. And a part of me, I was, re I felt really sorry for them. I truly did because I thought, oh, these poor, poor people, they have no one. And they would say, I can't tell my friends. I can't tell my parents because I'll, I'll be a social leper, which obviously is completely understandable. And I felt really sorry for them. However, my empathy or my sympathy for them was then counteracted with the thought of, Christ, if someone told me, Seb, you have to be celibate, and this is being purely honest, I don't think I could do it. I could do it for maybe a certain while, but I don't, like, luckily my thing is accepted in society. I have a girlfriend and no one questions me about it, and that's brilliant. But if someone told me you can't touch these women ever, and even to look on porn about it is disgusting, I think I would cave in. And so my question to you is, as a therapist who, who has sessions with these people, how do you, without using chemical castration, or do you use chemical castration, how do you put these people back into society with a certain assuredness that they won't ever offend and it's just a personal affliction that will never cause anyone else ever any harm? And secondly, how do you tally that responsibility? Because for you, I must imagine that must weigh so heavily to go home and to think, Christ, I've just spoken to Bob and I'm really not sure if Bob can actually manage this. How do you how do you do that? Excellent, excellent, excellent questions. Uh, first, uh, uh, let me uh, 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 yeah. a phrase uh, uh, you used. Uh, these aren't you know sending people back into society. The ones who come to me you know now in a private clinic uh, yeah. are the ones who you know they never were in jail. They they never you know committed yeah. a crime. They are coming to me specifically for help you know uh, dealing with the stresses that uh, that are associated with uh, in the research end of my career that was specifically within you know a forensic department of psychiatry you know working with people who were offenders you know so i i 
run the gamut. The situation though you're asking, you know, talking to a person, helping them deal with it, you know, yeah. those are really, uh, uh, those are not offenders. They, those are people, you know, uh, uh, if any, I was about to say working the hardest not to offend, but uh, the ones who come into me, uh, that's not really the question. They're not, you know, anywhere close to what I would even call a, 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 a borderline. Uh, the situation usually the emotional state that they come in with i don't get people coming in expressing trouble controlling themselves that's not the issue uh mm -hmm. they came in having depression and anxiety having difficulty dealing with the loneliness and the isolation that's associated with it that's what they're coming in. It's because they're not in contact with a community of peers. They can't tell their friends. They can't tell their parents. You know, so if they happen to be, you know, in Toronto, they're in the one, my, the one city, you know, having done exactly the same kind of search that you did, finding, oh, my God, you know, there is somebody who understands that, you know, not every person attracted to children acts on it. Oh, my God, they're in my city. Or these days we're doing everything online, so anywhere in the yeah. province. So those are the ones uh, uh, coming to me. Uh, so as I say, it, it's not really a question of uh, uh, of putting them back in society. The, the ones seeing me are already in society, and the ones not seeing me are also already in uh, in society. Uh, now they're already uh, for doing uh, what you were hinting to is what we uh, call a formal risk assessment. And that is indeed, you know, part of a uh, clinician's and a, a licensed expert's job is that uh, if the difference between when I do need to call the police or whatever the appropriate uh, authority is, this is part of the legitimate part of mandatory reporting. I am not required to report because I'm, somebody is attracted to children. I'm required to report when I have reasonable basis to believe that there is a child in need of protection. So if this guy, you know, has, you know, is on the border of actually doing something, I am and I will, you know, I am required to report that and that is perfectly appropriate. But that's not the situation with which people come in, uh, uh, with when, uh, with which people come in, uh, uh, come into me it, uh, within a private practice setting. Uh, in public hospitals where, you know, people who, uh, who have committed offenses and are therefore at an elevated risk you know, to commit new offenses, you know, those, again, we have formal ways of calculating the probabilities, you know, uh, large groups of people of various characteristics followed up and we get to see which characteristics predict, you know, the greater, uh, greatest probability of future, uh, of future offenses. Now, of course, I'm well-trained in that and I'm a, a, a competent and therefore confident, you know, in, in making such predictions. Um, but bottom line is sooner or later, how does anybody, you know, any psychologist, any licensed mental health professional deal with any of that? That's part and parcel of the responsibility that we have. And, you know, why we require the kind of training that we do is that, you know, that's that that is part of it. Uh, now, again, in private practice, you know, people are self-filtered. These are people, you know, with jobs, educations, insurance that, you know, that cover psychotherapy and so on, uh, which is different from uh, people who are under the care of psychiatrists and public health care systems, under the medical systems in, uh, in hospitals, which are uh, 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 people who usually have fewer resources and are in more dire straits to begin with. With those, the risk is, uh, uh, is higher. Uh, it is... Uh, interesting, uh, uh, interesting to note, important to note. 
uh, of the people who commit offenses, again, they're the ones most likely to commit uh, new offenses, 10 to 15%. Once a person is apprehended for having committed uh, a sex offense, comparatively few, as I say, 10 to 15% will commit new such offenses. You know, there's a small number of, you know, psychopathic serial offenders. Those are the dangerous ones. For the others, they're more, you know, people who were tempted, slipped, and, you know, once smacked with a system, oh my God, what did I do? And are actually very unlikely to, uh, uh, to do it, uh, it again. Uh, the lesson that I wish most of mental health would learn, uh, and policymakers probably, uh, 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 well, policymakers too, or often the same group of people. Uh, people do the most desperate things when they feel the most desperate. But rather than help them deal with that desperation, we just keep passing laws that increase their desperation. We just keep cutting themselves, uh, cutting them off from the kind of things that, as I say, would put them in contact with competent uh, uh, clinicians, wherever those clinicians may uh, uh, may be, or cut them off from you know communication on Twitter or the uh, uh, or the websites you're uh, uh, you're mentioning. Uh, mm -hmm. I will mention uh, uh, two websites: one, uh, uh, two community groups of uh, uh, yeah. People who, yeah, they're anonymous, but they, again, acknowledge their attractions to children. Uh, I'm going to mention these two mostly to contrast them. Uh, mm -hmm. The one that I like and I endorse over and over again, all over the place. I send people, you know, contacts from all over the world who, who get in touch with me. The virtuous pedophiles. That's uh, the one that I saw. Yeah. V-I-R-P-E-D dot org. I cannot endorse them, you know, strongly enough. These are people, as I say, are aware, acknowledge their sexual interests and support each other in not committing offenses. They, uh, as I say, I, I, I've gotten to meet many of them, most, uh, uh, mostly electronically, and they are exactly what they say they are. Uh, uh, and there have now been, uh, they are now actually uh, a source of research data. Uh, as other scientists have now, you know, started recognizing this population and saying, oh, we can study pedophilia from the non-offenders you know, now adding to what we know about people who were recruited from forensic institutions, you know, so now we're getting to see mm -hmm. what's general to pedophilia and what is, you know, specific to criminality and so on, or stress and so on. Yeah. Uh, so that group, I, I, I heartily, heartily endorse, and they have very, very uh, strict rules, and I take them very, very seriously about no contact with children, you know, no circulation of inappropriate material and so on. They're serious. They're the real deal. Uh, and uh, they're also uh, very well policed. I'm not worried about you know their their websites coming uh, 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 coming under attack. There's another group that I don't refer people to called Before You Act. Now uh, they actually precede by uh, many years uh, the Verbhead community, uh, uh, the Verbhead group. The reason that I don't endorse Before You Act the way that I endorse uh, Verbhead is because. The before you act basic philosophy, the philosophy of the founders is much cagier. Rather than coming out and saying, no, child molestation is wrong, period, zero tolerance, like the verb heads do, the before you act is cagey about, you know, whether they would like the age of consent reduced. Rather than having a policy for it, it's before you act, know what the local laws are. So yeah. there's much more of a, we can say it out loud, but wink, wink. Um, right. 
So I can't say that there's a, any particular philosophy about any particular person, and I don't want to generalize to every member of it. But as I say, I can and I do very strongly get behind Verped. Before you act, uh, no, that um, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Dr. James, I wonder if you could clear up something. I've, I was speaking to some friends, my girlfriend, we were talking about, you know, there's kind of, it seems like there's two routes here. If you want to, if you recognize you're a pedophile, you want to go treat it, I was going to say, but manage it, I should say better. And it kind of felt like there's the therapy route and then there's the chemical castration route. And just like, and this is just through public like discourse, I came across, and this is kind of my own understanding until I researched a bit more, that kind of chemical castration, the best way I could put it, if without researching into it, it felt like it was, well, if you like steaks, it's kind of like, we'll make you impotent, but you'll still have the same like. So it's like, we'll take away your hunger, but you're still going to like steaks, but you just, you're never hungry enough to eat them. But you still, when you see them on the plate, you're like, oh, that's a beautiful steak. And it kind of felt like that was it. And then I researched more and I was like, maybe that's not the case. But I just wanted to clear up with you, chemical castration, does it work? What is it? How does it work? Uh, chemical castration is a very dramatic term. I think it probably would be more uh, descriptive, more accurately descriptive, as yeah, if we spoke more generally about sex drive reducing medication. Now, sex drive, of course, reduces just with age. It's going to happen no matter what. Uh, There are two main classes of drugs that reduce sex drive in men. Uh, One with only mild side effects, one with pretty substantial ones. Uh, The ones with uh, uh, relatively mild side effects are the uh, the SSRIs. Uh, Mostly they're used as antidepressants. Uh, Paxil, Prozac, that family of drugs. Uh, One of the side effects of those drugs is that, you know, they reduce sex drive. And some people who take them as antidepressants or, uh, uh, or they have certain other purposes, you know, complain that it reduces their sex drive or reduces their capacity to to orgasm in uh, in a lot of people. So uh, if you're depressed, yeah, research has shown that that it's quite, uh, quite effective for that. And again, if you can tolerate the decrease in sex drive. If, however, you have a sex drive that is, you know, uh, uh, making life tougher for you, well, then the reduction in sex drive is no longer a side effect. It's the effect you were going for. And now the side effect is anti-depression. Well, that's not so bad. Or, uh, again, many of these people are genuinely depressed. You know, so uh, a lot of them report, you know, that they feel more comfortable on the drug uh, than not. Uh, and again, I'm just, you know, uh, telling people what my own clients tell me, what, what the research mm-hmm. says. Uh, but I'm not a physician. I'm not a, I, I, I can't give medical advice. Uh-huh. Uh, the other class of sex drive reducing medications are the much more powerful ones. Uh, and they t- uh, tend to get used really with people who, uh, who are uh, serial sex offenders uh, or uh, who have other major either psychiatric or medical conditions that make self-control in them, you know, unrealistic. Uh, those are the anti-androgens. Those are, you know, the same drugs that we would give a man with prostate cancer. They're testosterone blockers, you know, uh, uh, ultimately. Uh, and so that's, you know, really what chemical castration is because, and it shuts down sex drive without, you know, testosterone, uh, testosterone in our system, you know, they just don't have, you know, the urges that, uh, that the rest of us do. And they vary, you know, it's not quite like a switch. It's there, uh, there a little bit, very often they report, you know, erectile dysfunction, they can't get erections, never mind orgasms, you know, depending on the dose, depending on the, uh, uh on the person and so on. Uh, and they're 
do indeed exist people who say that they would rather live in that state because they find themselves less distracted by whatever stimulus it is that they find themselves uh, attracted to. And that's a person-by-person decision. You know, there's no good way. uh, We don't have a good way to to predict that. But, of course, the side effects uh, of that are quite substantial. You know, for long-term use, uh, 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 osteoporosis, you know, bone density loss and, uh, and so on. Uh, so one would tend to use it only in dramatic circumstances, but sometimes there do exist uh, dramatic uh, circumstances. Uh, it's interesting. We've spoken there, and you've cleared it up for me, but we've spoken there about men. And that leads me on to my next question. When we talk about sexual abuse in general, we always think of it as a man. And then when we especially it feels like when we talk about um, pedophilia, child molestation, it almost feels exclusively that men do it. What does the science say? What does your experience say? I mean, I'm guessing that there are cases of women who have have pedophilic tendencies. Uh, There have been reports of female sexual abusers. Now, again, it is a small, small, small fraction relative to the uh, biologically male sexual sexual abusers. Uh, And they tend to be uh, uh, an otherwise typical... The technical word for attracted to adults is teleophilic. You know, people got tired of... uh, Silly word, adultophilia, uh, but uh-huh. they, uh, but uh, the women do appear to be genuinely or more genuinely attracted to uh, adults, uh, but engaged in some, you know, grossly inappropriate behavior with usually uh, postpubescent, you know, mid-teenage male is the typical situation. Uh, sexual contacts with a prepubescent child is very, 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 very rare uh, in women. Uh, and when it does happen in women, it is almost always, you know, in concert with, you know, a, uh, a set of other, again, very dramatic, profound uh, uh, other issues, uh, very difficult personality disorders, psychiatric disorders. You know, it, it, it had, it, it's, we, we question whether she was aware exactly of what uh, what it was she, uh, she was doing. Mm. And of the people who, uh, of the women who come in saying that they're attracted to, uh, to prepubescent children, it's very, very often a question, are they actually, or is this, uh, is this a person who, again, with other mental health issues, who either has an obsessive fear that she might be a pedophile, but it's not. She is OCD, and she has a, an irrational fear that she's a pedophile right. or, uh, or will hurt a child, uh, or is using that self-label for an unhealthy need for attention, like in borderline personality disorder or uh, other personality dis- uh, disorders. So as I say, once we rule out the other much more probable situations, it really is a question how much, if any, people are left over. So there do exist people who engage in the behavior, but it's not so clear if, uh, how many, if any, are genuine pedophiles in the way that uh, 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 biological males are you know, profoundly and much more genuinely uh, uh, pedophilic. So I don't want to automatically rule it out but I'm. I immediately have several uh, uh, several questions, and I start skeptical because all of these other situations, you know, where where either the the, the client patient themselves or their care providers are pushing for that diagnosis for a uh, for some reason other than it uh, than its accuracy. So I'm automatically mm-hmm. skeptical, but there is no reason to say that it cannot exist. Uh, thank you for that. That's really interesting because, uh, yeah, I just kind of assumed that we just didn't hear about it, but that, yeah, it's 
there just like anything else but to hear that maybe not the case is um yeah food for thought for sure it's it's like a lot of this situation once we separate you know pedophilia from child molestation a lot of the rest of it starts to make a lot more sense yes exactly that see now that we're talking the more and more i think about it the more i think my uncle was more is more a child molester than a pedophile um coming down to what you've said you said you said um, at the start that sometimes it's more linked or the cases of the molestation is more ancestral, ancestral, and it happens within the families. Is that purely opportunity? It's easier. You're always around them. Uh, you maybe have a certain level of confidence because it's your uncle, it's your granddad, it's whoever. Or, or is it more sinister than that? What, 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 why is that the case? Uh, I, 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 of course, can't say anything specific to no, uh, course, to your yeah. situation or, or no, your no, no, uncle just in general. But in that general uh, pattern, uh, but what you describe is the general pattern that we see that the, because right. the kid is available, you know, trusts the whoever it is, is more manipulable, uh, mm-hmm. is more likely to be obedient, sometimes cuddly. And so, you know, the, the behavior increases, you know, one, uh, for lack of a better term, pushing the envelope a little bit more each time. You know, and again, for lack of a better term, successive approximation for what the uh, offender is aiming for uh, to begin with. Uh, That's a similar pattern of successive approximations also happens, however, amongst the serial offenders against people who, you know, kind of automatically would be obeyed. Priests, teachers, you know, people, again, who have uh, who have uh, uh, access and, you know, who have access now to a string of victims rather than a, uh, a single one. Uh, now, again, the, uh, uh, the majority, again, the great majority of incest offenders turn out not to be genuinely pedophilic, but there are some, you know, of so bets are off. And as I say, you know, there, there's certainly no way I, I, uh, I could know anything specific or could say anything specific right. to, uh, to you or your uncle. I'm really glad you brought up the priests there, actually, because that's... Um... Something look, I'm Catholic. Well, grew up in a Catholic um, culture. Jim did as well. Italian and Irish. Probably can't get more Catholic than those two. And um, it's something that we've had grown up with. It's like, oh yeah, all priests are pedophilic. And I think that distinction that you made is that the, it's more likely than not the ones who've been caught. Yes, they're child molesters. And maybe there's a few in there who also meet the criteria of being a pedophile. But the majority, because you don't hear that. You don't hear, oh, priests are child molesters. You hear piece of piece of pedophiles. It's almost like it just fits in together. It's lovely, and then we get we tarnish them all with the same brush. And I think if one thing we can learn from this podcast, there's many, but is that distinction between pedophilia and child molestation is is something that I myself wasn't fully aware of and kind of used them interchangeably. To be honest, I I certainly can't fault you for it. As I say, you know, people get this information, you know, not from the research journals, but from when they see it in the paper. But, you know, pedophile wakes up, goes to work, comes home, doesn't make it into the paper. Yeah, Child molestation does. And to a lot, as I said, to a lot of people, these are synonyms. They only see the two within the same story. So it's, as I say, I can understand where the mistake, uh, where the mistake comes from. Uh, but the route to understanding and therefore preventing child molestation is understanding, you know, the fundamental, con- uh, uh, yeah. uh, where it comes from on a, uh, on a fundamental level. Uh What's going on in the priesthood, specifically the Catholic priesthood, I'll mm-hmm. tweak that to say uh, in uh, institutions that require celibacy, has, uh-huh. not, has not been studied a lot or has not been studied, you know, in an objective 
way much. Right. But I can't help but make uh, what to me is obvious, but I'll say uh, intuitive hypotheses. Now, it's also, and again, I, I, I have to play my, you know, get out of a, 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 a jail-free gay card a bit. There is also, you know, a very high uh, overrepresentation of gay men who become Catholic priests. Again, being very careful that, you know, old stereotype gay men, pedophiles, you know, use these two terms carefully. That's why I have to play my card. I don't think there's any association between those two groups, but it is very, very easy to hypothesize that these are two different groups there for the same reason. They're there for the coverage of the oath of celibacy. Right. If you're a gay man and you don't want parents, friends, family asking, where's your wife? Why aren't you married? Where are my grandchildren? Becoming yeah. a priest is a socially acceptable way to accept the, where's your girlfriend? Peter Fox yeah. said the same thing. They also have the, where's your wife? Where are my grandchildren? And becoming a priest is a way, so socially acceptable, to get out of the why I'm not dating, why I, you know, get out of these questions mm-hmm. and still circulate in society in a pro-social way. Again, I have no idea if that's true and I can't imagine, you know, what kind of a survey would, you know, uh, demonstrate it one way or another, but it is, right, it's a pretty hard hypothesis to shake. Uh, and that also is, you know, again, now we're dealing with, you know, part rumor, part science. So many of the gay male priests end up going to bathhouses, having sex with each other, you know, and nobody gets hurt. But the pedophiles, you know, when they act on it, kids are getting uh, kids are getting hurt. But their the attraction is not so much the priesthood, so much as the social coverage, the shield that comes from a public oath of celibacy. Mm, yeah, it's an interesting link to draw there. Jim, do you have any questions before I finish up here? I guess it would be nice just to to hit home again at what you would consider to be an ideal uh, scenario or ideal future for pedophiles. Uh, like I know you mentioned that policies that are ostracizing people are making people more uh, vulnerable and, and harder to reach people. That's obviously preventing... Um, that's-, that's obviously... Yeah, uh, I guess... Is there anything that you didn't mention or that I've forgotten to mention that you would hope for in the next few years that we could facilitate to uh, decrease the number of uh, sexual assaults and at least give unoffending uh, pedophiles some sort of well-being, I guess? That's that's an excellent question. Uh, Really, for uh, for the relative short-term, uh, really would be to undo a lot of the hysteria that has been done, make it easier for these people to come in, uh, make it easier for people to get therapy, make it easier for people to come in and get uh, 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 sex drive reducing medications. We want to protect their confidentiality so they can come in. We really need to conquer the idea of trying to make ourselves look good rather than actually you know, reduce the potential harm. We need to bring the mandatory reporting laws to, again, where they protect society rather than, you know, protect our uh, own reputations. We need, you know, imagine if, you know, a, a, whatever, a reasonable amount of money, you know, I don't have a number in, uh, in my head that went to, you know, so there can be help, uh, help lines that people could contact. 
you know, fund actual research for groups like uh, like Verped, you know, so we can do more of this kind uh, uh, kind of research and figure out how this uh, uh, ticks. Now, now that I brought up money, uh, the amount of money in the U.S. that it costs to keep uh, uh, keep someone in one of these uh, 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 sex offender programs, you know, segregated and so on, is well over a hundred thousand dollars per person per year. My entire research program, all of the brain scans, was about the cost of one person in jail. If we prevented one case, this research would have paid for itself. But the science and the funding for the science is nowhere to be found. But when all, all of a sudden it's revenge, now money is no object. If we just put the resources in logical uh, in logical places, in genuine prevention rather than vengeance, imagine you know how many lives we could we could save from you know being ruined. Uh, so I would say you know reverse the irrational parts of the mandatory reporting laws and make it possible for these people to come in and get help from the groups that uh, 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 that have to provide it. Uh, another group, and for anybody else looking for a therapist, uh, uh, especially in the US or, uh, or Canada, uh, the uh, Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers, ATSA.com, they maintain a, uh, a referral list. So uh, allowing you know these groups to be able to communicate, allowing and facilitating these people uh, uh, to get into uh, 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 self-help groups like Verped, all of that. We have every reason to suspect that what we know about crime prevention will work in these groups, and we need to apply it rather than our own emotionality, as you know, seductive as our anger can be. Thank you so much for for coming on. It's been it's been I mean really great for me and and I hope for people who are listening. Before we let you go, you do some really hard work, sir, and it's needed. But I can't I can't help imagine the toll it must take. And um, so I want to ask, who helps the helper? How do you keep on top of your mental health? How do you stay in a fit state to it to help other people? I really don't know. Uh, I can't say that I have the experience of it just weighs on me and weighs on me and weighs on me and I have to go, you know, blow off steam with my husband or other people. That, that That's that's not my experience of it. Uh, my experience of it is much more, I think, average like everybody else's. You know, I and I'm very, very, very lucky. I'm surrounded by a loving family. I'm surrounded with a loving uh, husband. I am surrounded by colleagues whom I trust and trust me and that we're great friends. My friends are, you know, critical thinkers and readers. So just, you know, take it. Uh, so just being surrounded by, uh, rounded by people who like interesting ideas and who are unafraid of discussing them. That's, that's really uh, uh, it. The thing that I find disquieting is not dealing with these difficult people. It's watching society's major institutions, major scholarly and academic institutions having fallen one after another. Universities that are not protecting free speech. Speakers getting canceled at professional societies because they're saying something that's politically unpopular with a small handful of people. Uh, scientific journals or professional societies saying things like avoid controversy. 
how are you going to solve anything when you're telling professional groups of psychologists avoid controversy? Okay, let's take the people who have the most information and remove them from uh, uh, from social media. Yeah, that's going to help society come up. <laughs> that's what worries me. Uh, and I, I, I had to switch the uh, uh, the picture that I use uh, uh, in my background on Twitter. It's Dagobah. I feel like Yoda after you know the the the, the empire has fallen to the dark side, and I just have to escape <laughs> you know to my swampland and await the birth of a new hope in the new generation because this one's lost. <laughs> well, hopefully that birth of a new generation comes along soon, and Yoda can return once more. Um, Imagine how old I'll be then. <laughs> well listen it's you're holding up well now you're <laughs> holding up well if i can look like you at your age i'll be mighty pleased um before before you go anyone who who's listened to this and now think oh you know what this has opened up a whole pandora's box that i didn't really know about and and they want to read more where can they find you and kind of your works and anything that you would um, recommend sure uh my website i keep uh, uh although i'm due to update it uh jamescantor.org Okay, perfect. We'll put all of that in the show notes. We'll put your Twitter in the show notes as well. Um, so people can find you. I recommend following. And if Twitter says that it's sensitive content, go to your settings, people. Um, and because it's, it might be sensitive, but it's worth seeing. So uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. James. It's really, really been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. I'm now thinking Twitter needs a setting. So just give me the sensitive material. Filter that in. <laughs> boring stuff. Exactly. That's the spirit. Um, hopefully we can talk to you soon. But until next time, um, stay well. My pleasure. Thank you. You too. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.